Welcome to Bioethics On Air, the program that brings you thoughtful, in-depth commentary on ethics at the crossroads of science, medicine, and daily life. I'm Jose Ayalot, your host. We are a broadcast of the National Catholic Bioethics Center in Philadelphia. Infertility has been, and continues to be, an unfortunate reality in our world. Many married couples who want to have children cannot, and the cross they bear can be very heavy and painful. To discuss this important issue, and to offer faithfully Catholic responses to it, I'm happy to welcome to the podcast Dr. Marie Meany. Marie will speak today about her own experiences dealing with infertility and how her Catholic faith sustained and continues to sustain her in this struggle. Her insights are drawn from her new book, When Expecting Doesn't Happen, Turning Infertility into a Journey of Hope. And in full disclosure, I should mention that Marie is the wife of NCBC President Joseph Meany. So Dr. Marie Meany, with that intro in mind and disclosure in mind, welcome to Bioethics on Air. Thank you so much, Joe. <laughs> so Marie, you are a new guest on our podcast. And as our listeners know, with all new guests, I ask, uh, I'll ask you to, to tell us a bit about your background, specifically your education, your work experience, and the work you're doing now. Absolutely. So um, I'm half German and half French. I was raised in Germany and um, we've moved in a lot of different countries. <laughs> and since 2019, we're now um, in Pennsylvania and very mm -hmm. happily so since my husband became president of the NCBC. I'm an academic by training. I first got a master's in philosophy from the International Academy of Philosophy in Liechtenstein and then went to Oxford and got a master's in MPhil in comparative literature and then a doctorate. I'm a specialist on the French philosopher and mystic Simone Weil and um, continue to, to write about her. And um, and then I write about more popular things, um, sad things like infertility. Like infertility, I was going to say, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but also other issues. So that, that's me. Excellent. So, Marie, the, the, the new book that you wrote focuses on your own experiences dealing with infertility. Can you tell us, before getting into you know, the nitty-gritty of things, can you tell us how and why your experience caused you to write this book? Yeah, so my husband and I got married in 2000, and we were hoping to have a large family. And among the many things that I thought might go wrong, that was not one of them that I predicted. <laughs> <laughs> and that's, I think, the case with, with most couples to whom this happens. Mm -hmm. So um, we, um, my husband is an optimist, so he was always thinking, it's just going to happen, and I tend to be more melancholic and pessimistic. But anyway... So you're um, like me. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> so anyway, so the years were going by and it was getting, you know, more and more difficult to bear this burden. And some doctors were giving us hope and others were giving us less hope. And we were simply trying to figure out what, what was actually going on. And of course, we were always hoping that someday we'd just wake up and, and would be expecting. And I just found it increasingly difficult to bear this cross, to deal with it. You know, I found it very helpful what the church was saying, and we completely mm -hmm. agreed with its teaching, but it didn't tell me how to deal with this day by day. And so I decided in 2006 to write something about it because, you know, I wasn't finding anything at the time. Right. 
I would talk to other women in the same situation and thought, you know, that we have a lot of things in common. So, and I realized that there are a couple things I really got wrong with the best of intentions. Um, so between that and realizing that family and friends also had difficulties of how to deal with things and often tend to put their foot in their mouth, um, I thought, I need to write something about this for the couple, for their family, and um, just to get us through this. And so it was written in darkness, not knowing whether we'd ever have a child. And it first came out as a um, as a CD uh, published by Human Life International at the time. My husband was working for that wonderful organization. And um, and then in 2009, we finally got our, our first child. And, um, and then I brought it out as a booklet and then wrote it also in different versions. So since I'm German, I rewrote it in German with my mother partially translating um, parts of it. And then it, I rewrote it in French in a much expanded version. And that came out in 2017. And then I thought I really need to get back to the English version because it's much has happened since then. And um, then Emos Road Publishing House was interested in it. And um, so I'm very happy that, that it just came out in the hopefully definitive version. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, so this this wasn't a sit down and write this book. This was an ongoing process, and from various different materials and different languages as well, too. So it's it's yeah, absolutely. And of course, things change. So once I had a child, I felt well. With what authority can I write? Because people reading this was like, well, it's easy to talk now. Now you have a child, and um, and I, I'm still sort of using the experience from before, but also I was surprised by the pain of secondary infertility. I thought, mm-hmm. you know, once I have a child things will be so different. And of course they were. So don't get me wrong. I mean, it's, right. it's, it's a world of a difference to have a child rather than having none at all. But but the pain of secondary infertility is real. And I, I, I struggled with that a lot. So I felt, well, I'm still in this pain and I can still tap into it. So I still feel that I can talk about it. Yeah. And, um, and and we did have um, a second pregnancy, which unfortunately um, led to a miscarriage. And, and then for many years, we still hoped that we would have more children. So, um, and, and it was a long process. So I felt I wrote the book originally in darkness and, you know, with the hope and the belief that one can come out of this tunnel in some way. And so now when I wrote it, I felt, well, now I have come out of that tunnel. And not just because I have a child, but because of different things that have happened that God has done in our lives and that I hope to share with with my readers and, and our listeners. Yeah. And we're going to come back and we're going to talk about secondary infertility a little bit later in the interview. But I do have to say that knowing your story, as I was reading the book, I was I was trying to figure out because you, you mentioned this kind of in the preface that this was you know, the book is is brought together from different from different parts of your life, and I was trying to like okay, what was going on when I'm reading this part? What's so I was trying to figure that out. It was it was it was kind yeah. of interesting, but yeah. but Marie, can you comment on the book's title? So the, the title is "When Expecting Doesn't Happen: Turning Infertility into a Journey of Hope." What do you what are you seeking to convey through this title? Well, precisely this, you know, when you're, when you're in it, it feels you're, you're being crucified. It's, it's, it's so painful. Now, let me just an aside and put, make it aside. Some people don't find it very painful and that's completely mm-hmm. fine. So, you know, it's for some, they just shake it off. For others, it's moderately difficult. And for others, it's just absolutely crushing and life-changing. So, um, and I was one of the latter. So, you know, good for you if you're not in that category, um, you know, that you're not doing anything wrong. It's just people do experience things differently. Um, so it feels like you're never going to get out of this. And um, you know with your mind, you know, from the great saints and spirituality of the church and your faith that 
you know, all of this should end up in a good way, but you just can't see it happening. And so I want to speak to those people who are really still in that darkness and say, no, no, you, you, will, you will get to the end of this and things will turn around. Uh, I don't know how long it's going to take, but hopefully my book is going to help you get there quicker. But it's something between you and how God is acting in your souls and, um, and simply how much this is crushing you. Yeah. So overall, what did you want or what do you, I should say, want to accomplish through this book? Well, I'm, I'm trying to do a whole number of things. So the one is to speak to the infertile couple, uh, try to tell them what you're experiencing is normal. You're not getting anything any wrong. It is really difficult. And this is what you should avoid. And this is what you can do in the meantime. Okay. Then it's a book that I wrote for family and friends who feel helpless and yep. don't know what to say, end up saying the wrong thing, walk around on tiptoe. And I kept it short. So, and there's just one chapter on that. So if there's nothing else that they need to read, they can just read that and that will hopefully really help them. And then I also try, I, I try to explain the teaching of the church on this because today infertile couples are giving a whole host of options and some of them um, go fundamentally against their dignity and the dignity of the human, of the child and the human person in general and against marriage. And it's very hard to resist that option because it's sold to you as that is your option to a child. And if you don't take it, then it's your own fault if you don't have one. Mm -hmm. And so I try to both explain the teaching of the church and why this is so serious and also see how that plays itself out empirically, looking at children who have been conceived through IVF, who are now grown-ups, through couples who have gone through this and who've been badly damaged in the process, um, and say, well, you know, the church is not putting these rules up simply to make our life difficult, but on the contrary, because they want to show us the path to life and because the other path is very damaging. And, um, you know, if you have children that are born conceived through IVF and everything's fine. Good for you. You know, I rejoice in that. I, I don't want people to go through a hard time through this, but there is something that went fundamentally wrong there in the beginning and you can still be great parents and your children can, can work out just great, but many have a lot of issues. And so um, for would-be parents, you know, we have a responsibility towards our future children and we want to get things right. And it's not just a question of taking certain risks, but of getting something fundamentally wrong at the beginning. And that's something I try to, to, to address in this book as well. And, and that's a tough one because um, so many people are going that route. And, and then it's also a book on spirituality, on you know spiritually how to deal with this issue. And, and that, that's how I end the book. Yeah. And so let's kind of move into uh, talking about a couple of the themes of the book. And the first theme, and, and this kind of runs through um, well, a good portion of the book, mm -hmm. is the theme of mourning one's infertility. Mm -hmm. And I'd like to, this one and, and, and the next thing, I'm going to read a quote and, and ask you a couple, a couple of mm -hmm. questions on it. So regarding this issue of mourning one's infertility, you state the following in the book, quote, though courage and self-denial are admirable virtues, they can be problematic when they come at the cost of mourning. Then they grow into an avoidance mechanism. The implicit expectation is that somehow I can hoist myself out of my pain by holding it all together. But this, unfortunately, is rarely the case. Paradoxically, by trying to evade a suffering that I cannot resolve, I remain stuck in it." Unquote. 
that quote uh, caught my attention. So Marie, with that in mind, can you speak about what mourning entails with regard to, to infertility? Sure. So um, just to put this again into a personal context, I thought, you know, I'm going to be really courageous about this and I'm going to sail through this, this issue somehow. And, you know, we, we will, we will do great. <laughs> and, and I didn't realize that that kind of courage when it avoids mourning is actually a not real courage and not helpful, but counterproductive mm-hmm. because it's a way of avoiding the pain. So, so what does it mean? Well, it means Morning means not doing a whole lot of things. It means, well, I'm, I'm in pain now. I'm going to acknowledge that pain. I'm not going to try to pretend it's not there and throw myself into work. Now, I'm not saying that you should go full-headedly into a depression, you know, and let yourself completely go. No, the point is that to realize this is really hard and it's normal to have to mourn. I mean, when you have a family member die, it's normal to cry in everybody now knows that it's important to do so. Well, you have to cry about this too, basically. You have to, if you're not the crying type, well, you still have to allow yourself to feel that pain in some way. And um, and it means that you have to accept the fact that you're going to be in this for a while um, and that it's you're not getting anything wrong. No, it's you're actually getting it right. And even though it feels like you're not moving forward in this, by the mere fact that you're allowing yourself to experience this pain, um, best with, you know, your spouse um, and or a close friend, um, you are actually making progress um, and uh, and getting closer to to feeling greater peace and less pain. Yeah. So, Marie, how did or does your Catholic faith aid you in the morning process? And, and what advice would you offer to couples who are experiencing a, a morning that is similar to the one that you experienced? Yeah. So, um, you know, we tend to think of the, you know, embracing the cross. When we think about it in a theoretical way, it sounds, it sounds really good. And then when it becomes concrete, it becomes really difficult. And mm-hmm. the cross we get is usually the one that we don't want at all. So it's right. the one we want to shake off. So um, I'd say if you think about it in terms of something you may have to carry for decades then it becomes an impossible load, an impossible burden. And whenever I thought about, well, you know, how's it going to be like when I'm 40, when I'm 50, when I'm 60, and I haven't had any children? And, you know, you're taking on something that you cannot take on because you're living now. You haven't yet been given the graces to address that when you're 50 or 60. And by that point, for all you know, you might have some children or you might be able to deal with this in a completely different way. So it was, it's, it's something we all know of, but sort of for me to really concretely realize that, no, all I have to do is accept it for this second, this moment. I cannot accept it for tomorrow because it gets too hard. I accept it for this moment. And, and then it becomes, then I'm at peace because I simply, I realize I don't know what's going to be happening tomorrow. And so in that way, I know that Christ is with me in this, you know, he's been on the cross for us for our redemption, but also to be with us in all our pains. And um, when I came to discover Mother Teresa's um, sort of uh, inner darkness and the way she talked about God's thirst for us and about our inner Calcuttas, that sort of made a lot of things fall into place. So what does she mean? She means we all have in us this dark place not just of sinfulness, but also of pain where we think, you know, nobody can go in there because it's just too dark, it's too painful, and it's too awful. And 
you know, even if no other human person can get in there, God can. And he's, he's dying to get into there. He wants to go in there. And we often hold it back because we have this strange thought that somehow we have to be perfect because before we can meet Christ and fully unite right. with him. No, he wants to be with us in this. And uh, when you open that up to Christ, I found, find that is that really changes things fundamentally. And, um, and suddenly you realize that that which seems, humanly speaking, so destructive and um, so hopeless is something that is becoming something very meaningful in your life. So our cross, St. John Paul II said that, it becomes our vocation. It's often the vocation that we precisely do not want to have. Um, and also because we imagine a lot of terrible things uh, in the future about how this is going to continue. But at the moment, God is working through this. It may feel haphazard. And on one level, you know, God, he didn't create pain. He didn't create sickness. He didn't create sin. He didn't want us to go through that. But now that we have it, he is in that with us. And, um, and something very beautiful can come out of this. Yeah. As you were speaking, I'm... I'm thinking that what you're saying could be applicable to a lot of different mornings, not just Absolutely. infertility, but yes. to just so many things. And there's so many, Absolutely. so many tangents we could go to. We won't, but it, yeah. it's just so applicable across the board. Uh, another theme of the book is something that you, that you mentioned, and it's the cross. Mm-hmm. Um, and you spoke about this quite a bit in the book, the cross of infertility understood in, in light of the cross of Christ. And I'd like you to talk a little bit more about that uh, as well too. And I've, I've got a, a second quote um, on this topic. And, and you say this, quote, by embracing the cross, I will hopefully come to feel that its burden is light. If I shun it, it will crush me all the more. I am asked to make an act of trust rather than of courage, namely to recognize that God is greater than this abyss of pain, which threatens to devour me. Unquote. Marie, you, you started, I think, talking about it somewhat when you were talking about mourning, but can you put into words what is the cross of infertility? The cross of infertility um, is not only not having children when you desperately want them, but, because, but it's so particularly hard because you are in a vocation that calls for children. So your mm-hmm. marriage is just as valid and good with or without children if you're suffering from infertility and can't have any. But the so the purpose of your marriage, so, so the meaning of your marriage, express love to each other and the, the finality of it is children. So when they don't come up somehow, you know, you're, it feels stunting. It's something that was supposed to happen and it isn't because... Mm-hmm. That's the amazing thing, isn't it? That we can be co-creators, that somehow through our love, God makes it possible that another person is born and then another and another, and they all contribute something to your family. They make the life hard sometimes, um, but they also bring a lot of joy. And it's another soul through whom God is working another miracle. And hopefully, you know, we'll have another citizen in heaven. So you are starting off in marriage normally, except if you happen to know that you're suffering from infertility or sterility already before, but you go into marriage thinking that. And so you are deeply frustrated. And of course, um, for women, for whom uh, fertility is so deeply tied up to their being and to their vocation, and they carry the child for nine months, so not to have this is feels incredibly stunting and frustrating. Um, so, 
I don't know whether I've answered all your question at this point. No, no, that no, that actually uh, it does. I, I think it gives us a really good picture of what you were experiencing, and and then follow that up with the same question I just I just asked, really. But how did or does your Catholic faith help you to bear this cross? Mm-hmm. And if if you have any advice for for other um, couples who are experiencing the mm-hmm. similar cross, sure. Um, well, let's turn to the saints. Uh, there's this wonderful woman, Chiara Corbella, so she hasn't been canonized yet, but I'm very confident she will. Um, what was her name again? I, I just missed the name. Chiara, Chiara Corbella. She is an Italian woman who died 10 years ago. I think she was 27 years old. She got married very young. And um, she and her husband really went through great tragedy because their first two children each time were seriously handicapped so that they realized during the pregnancy that the child would not live. Mm -hmm. And they withstood the pressure of the doctors to have an abortion and they went through the birth and then they held their child for one or two hours, baptized it, gave it all the love they could and it died. And each time the children died and, you know, humanly speaking, you you can't imagine going through something like this. And they themselves were expecting to be absolutely shattered. And of course they were, but at the same time, they were surprised at the joy in their hearts when they walked out of the hospital each time. And, you know, they lost friends, you know, by the second time this happened, they lost some of their friends and some people who, um, you know, who don't understand uh, the way suffering works and how the cross works, so started accusing them, thinking, you know, they, you must be doing something wrong, that God is sending you this, which, of course, was completely wrong and absolutely uh, and very painful for them because we know that Job's friends are, are in the wrong when they try to <laughs> make Job responsible for his pain, and God gives a very different answer. And he has given us a very different answer since Christ uh, came. But um, so anyway, and then, she, they just felt inspired to try a third time. And this time the child was fine, but she developed a cancer in her mouth that normally only old men who have smoked all their lives get. And, and she never smoked. So the whole thing was, was very mysterious. And she didn't want to do any kind of treatment that might harm the child. So she did go through surgery um, in her mouth. And then um, the child um, came a month early and then she went through treatment. And, and a year later she died. And her husband, a few days before her death, was saying, you know, cross tells us that the cross is light, but, you know, is it light? And she was, oh, yes, the cross is sweet. And um, I find that tremendously, tremendously moving. And and they, too, said, you know, we just went ahead by little steps, piccoli passi, every day, just going ahead a little step. And now her husband is going around the world and some books have been, a book was written by friends of theirs that first appeared in in Italian and has now been translated in many languages. And I recently heard that her husband was going, giving some talks in the U.S. And um, Joseph and I had the good luck to go to Assisi. It was one or two years after her death, one year after her death. And they were um, doing a retreat there with her husband and her spiritual director. And they were talking about her and it was so tremendously moving. So, you know, there you can see how the cross is fruitful. And um, and again, you may not see it while you're in it. Uh, and often it's only in heaven that we, we come to see. But God gives us glimpses in between. And he gives us glimpses often through the lives of other people and, and through the saints like like Bella. Yeah, interesting. I'd like to go back to something that you spoke about uh, a little bit earlier. Uh, and it's secondary infertility. And mm-hmm. so you, you spoke it some length in the book uh, about this issue. But Marie, what is, for 
And, and I hadn't heard this term before actually reading the book, to be honest mm -hmm. with you. Can you tell us what is secondary infertility and how is its mourning and cross-bearing similar to and different from mm -hmm. that of, for lack of a better term, primary infertility? I, I, I couldn't think of another yeah. word for yeah. it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. No, that's correct. Um, so secondary infertility means that you would like to have more children. You have at least one living child and, and for whatever reason you can't, um, or it's difficult. And, um, I even met a woman who had eight children and who was mourning the fact that she couldn't have a ninth. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, so it's interesting how in our, our hearts, we can have this longing for life for, for more children. And that doesn't just go away with having a child. Um, so yes, as I was saying earlier on, it's a huge, huge difference, of course, to have a child, but at the same time you want more. And if you'll have only, only, uh, uh, quotation marks, one child, um, you'd like to have more also for the sake of the child, because you realize, well, it's, it's sad to be an only child. I was myself an only child, um, mm -hmm. uh, through no fault of my parents who would have liked to have more as well. And happily, I had a lot of cousins at 30, I have 33 first degree cousins because all the wow. rest of the family was very fertile. Um, so I got, I got sort of some, some siblings that way, but it's, it's simply sad because you'd like your child to have siblings and you can't do anything about it. And your child may ask for them. And, you know, well, well, God obviously is having a different plan. So, um, so I'd say don't underestimate the pain that people are going through, even when they have children, because I sort of felt some friends were checking out of us. It's like, well, now you have a child, now you're fine. Right. And, yep. you know, I don't necessarily right. expect everybody to be there for us all the time so that we can cry on their shoulders. But, um, you know, it, it wasn't just gone. Um, and, and we still went through a journey that was, was quite difficult and a struggle. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. Is it, is secondary infertility different from, again, for lack of a better term, primary infertility and, or, or were you experiencing the same thing? I was experiencing the same thing. Really? really? I, I was, yeah. It was less strong because I had a child mm -hmm. to focus on and, you know, and she was such a joy. But uh, it was strange to me that it could experience joy and sadness at the same time. You know, joy at having a child and, and such longing and sadness for, for another. I mean, we came out with, that, with a baby and, um, you know, the birth hadn't been easy. But each time I was driving by the clinic where we had the child, I was like, all I want to do is go back in there and have another right. child. Right. So, um, yeah, but again, experience of people can be different. So, you know, this was mine and yep. um, it can be a hidden suffering. So if you have family and friends who have one or two, yeah, well, you know, tread carefully because they, they may be suffering because they might yeah. want to have more. Yeah, you never know. So Marie, your Catholic faith is obviously essential uh, for you in, in dealing with the pain of infertility. What about people who don't have faith? And this may be sort of an unfair question, but how would you counsel someone, uh, uh, counsel a couple, in, you know, they're not a faithful couple, they, they don't have faith. How would you counsel them in dealing with infertility if you even can? Yeah. Well, it's interesting. I have a friend um, who's a psychologist and who converted to Catholicism. He was originally Protestant, but kind of agnostic, but he converted to Catholicism as a psychologist because he said, the Catholic faith is the only one to deal with pain in the right way. Otherwise, you get no right. <laughs> and what does the Catholic faith do? What does it say? It says you've got to embrace your cross. You've got to acknowledge the pain. You have to mourn it. 
And so the mourning process still has to happen. And it is still, and he says, you know, he works with couples who don't have the faith or, you know, with anybody who doesn't have the faith and who's going through pain. And, and he says, you know, in, in, in many ways it still works, <laughs> you know, and that they can get to a different place. Now, you know, I, I still find it hard to imagine to find that kind of a deep peace that Christ has has promised us. And I think that only can come when that longing in our heart that only God can fill has been filled. But, you know, dealing concretely with some issues of pain and tragedy, I think people can definitely be helped. And there was somebody, there's Viktor Frankl, of course, who's, sure. who's the inventor of logotherapy, as we know. And, and and that works also for people who don't have the faith. So you have to find, his point was you have to find meaning in your in your life. And of course he, and he was Jewish and he lost in the concentration camps of the Second World War, uh, his whole family and his wife, his parents, everybody. And, um, and yet he found deep meaning and purpose in his life. So um, I think it's possible. I think it's, a lot easier if you have the faith because you know that you have Christ with you. You've got a friend who is God who, who wants to console you and who's telling you that um, this life is just the beginning and there's much more to come. Um, and, you know, and that's, of course, I think that would make it very hard for non-believers to think, well, this is all I have and right. not having children. And that seems so essential to my happiness. And I have to give up on that. And I, I would think that would be very, very hard. But, you know, even as a believer, you have to give that up, that you may not have any children here. And we bought both. <laughs> we want we want it all, as you said, you know, we, we want happiness in this life. And of course, we want heaven as well. But um, so it's it simply is hard to give up that. And, and, and in that way, no, I think there's absolutely there is hope for people who, who don't have a faith. Well stated. All right. I want to change gears now. Mm -hmm. And I have to say this next section of the book, I almost laughed out loud. I loved it. <laughs> All right. This is the, you know, our culture says, uh, may say otherwise, but this is the men and women are different section of the book. And I absolutely love this. So, so regarding the differences between men and women, you state this, and I love this quote, quote, men and women have very different ways of approaching problems and addressing suffering. Boy, is that an understatement? <laughs> women need to talk, excuse me, women need to tend to talk more about their pain explain their frustrations, and cry over the absence of their children. Men, in contrast, frequently want to find solutions without saying much. A husband does not want to see his wife suffer, and he becomes frustrated when he cannot resolve the issue. Oh, yeah. His wife's approach seems futile to him, and it may be difficult for him to understand why she wants to speak about it so often. Unquote. All right. Now, I know you're talking about this in terms of infertility, but I just sat back. This is, I mean, on so many different areas. I just, in, in you know, in my marriage, I mean, I, I've seen this. It's like, you know, it, it's so, it's like difference between men and women here, but yeah. loved it. But anyway, but getting back to the, to, to how men and women experience infertility here, what would you say to a husband who, obviously along with his wife, is experiencing infertility, but it's having difficulty picking up on and or interpreting his wife's emotional cues. What should he do? What should he not do with regard to infertility? Okay. Great question. Um, you know, we're both in this together, the wife and the husband. Uh, this is a learning process, and we have to be aware that we're both learning mm -hmm. and that we might well be hurting each other without intending to. So um, I'd say my, my advice to husbands is, you know, it's I understand that it's really hard for you to understand, to comprehend what's going on in your wife. 
Um, so keep it simple, you know, ask things like, how, how are you doing? You know, just something easy like that will hopefully make her open up and, and tell you what's going on and cry. And, um, and it feels very, I know, very difficult for a husband to see his wife cry because all he wants to do is console her. And unfortunately, most of the time he can't fix something like infertility just with a snap of his finger. So that, that's key right there. I, that you, you hit the nail on the head because that's what guys want to do. Sure. We want to fix the problem, whatever it may be. We want to fix it, but we can't fix it. It is so hard. I know I'm, I'm, I'm hearing you. And, and, you know, and it's important for, for the man to say that to his wife, if she's not aware of it, you know, it's like, all I want to do is fix it. I find that so difficult not to be able to do that. And that would be the moment for the woman to say, if she has already, it's like, but this is helping me tremendously, you know, just being able to let it out. That's her way of mourning. That's her way of getting to a better place. <clears throat> and it may feel endless to the husband because, you know, here we are again, she's crying and we're not any closer, but you know, patience, patience means you are suffering with the other person. You're right there where you're supposed to be. You're allowing your wife to mourn and this is what she needs. And, you know, and then you can say, well, what can I do to help? Is there anything I can do to help? You know, and then listen to your cues, but often she say, well, there's not much you can do, you know, because you can't, you can't, you can't fix it. But right. What I would say in terms of concrete help is accompany your, your wives to their doctor's appointments. It's very difficult to be going to a gynecologist and seeing all these other women pregnant in the waiting room and you're not. And, you know, and you're getting another bad news from the gynecologist now is going to tell you why this is not working out. Um, so ha having your husband there is tremendously helpful. Sorry. And, um, and also helping to figure out methods, you know, we tried, we didn't just go down the main route, we tried alternative things. And it's so helpful if, um, if the woman doesn't have to do that all on her own, but her right. husband looks at things with her on the internet. And anyway, you have to discuss it, you have to say, well, does this make sense? Is this not going to lead us anywhere? Do we feel comfortable with us? Um, so for him to do some research too, and simply also be supportive when she's doing that. Right. And that's great advice for dealing with issues beyond infertility. Yeah. 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 Oh, absolutely. I, 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 yeah. Um, all right. So we talked about advice to the husband. Well, yeah. what about advice to the wife? So Marie, what did, what advice would you give to a wife to help her one yeah. recognize the struggles her husband has in helping her and two, address her own husband's grieving? Yeah, absolutely. So, um, first of all, Acknowledge it again, just saying, you know, I know this is difficult for you. I know you would love to help me and you feel helpless. Um, but what I just said, you know, for the wife to say, you know, this is helping me. You are helping me tremendously in doing this. So please just be there for me. Be a shoulder for me to cry on um, even um, when when it's difficult. Now, this doesn't mean that your husband can always be available, you know, just like with friends. And that's OK. Uh, sometimes you just have to be alone with your pain, <laughs> but um, but simply again and again, each time you have cried and and shared your pain with him, to tell him, you know, this was really good for me. Thank you, thank you for this. That that will help him him a lot. And the other thing that's important is to acknowledge his issue, his pain. He may not be very good about expressing it. Um, and it <laughs> we got, we're not. We're yeah, just, just we're not. not. <laughs> and, and you know, perhaps it is less hard for him. To see it, but sometimes it is harder for the husband than for the wife. So things, it's in all likelihood, it's going to be harder for one to be dealing with this infertility. And sometimes it can be the husband. But in any case, even if it feels 
for you as the wife that your husband is just not suffering as much, you still have to acknowledge his pain and, and ask him, you know, is, is, how painful is it for you? And if he can't find words to express it, then, you know, then let that be. You don't need to force him. Um, but just say, you know, I know, I know it's hard for you, even if you cannot speak about it and, and tell me how I can help you. Right. Tell me. And, and just acknowledge that you're going through a tremendously difficult time and it may feel like a breaking point to your marriage, but something that if you manage to get through this is going to make you stronger. And, and key to this is to say, we, we, we've got to accept each other in our brokenness and in our suffering. And, you know, we made vows and we were going to accept each other's, other's fertility and bring child, forth children. But now we are accepting each other and saying yes to each other in our infertility. Perhaps it's clear that one is, is the cause of infertility and not the other. Well, then you have to say yes to your husband or to your wife. I love you with this infertility. Um, right. Yeah. So it's, you know, ultimately you, you, you can come out of this a lot stronger. And, and if things are, feel like they're at a dead end, I'd say, you know, go to a good priest, go and get therapy. Don't let this blow out of proportion. Don't let this wreck your marriage. That would be just adding another tragedy to, to, to the one you're already experiencing. Yeah. As I was reading the section of the book, a, um, I, I remember that I was having a conversation with a priest, and this was a number of years ago, and I don't know why we got on this topic. It may have been Father, that may have been, that may have been what it was. It may have been Father's Day, but a priest told me that one day out of the year, and, and I think it may have been Father's Day, or it may have been like the, the birthday of his oldest niece or nephew or something like that. He said one day a year, he grieves the fact that he does not have children. Now, obviously, this is by choice, sure. right? But what insights would you offer to him, or I suppose, mm -hmm. you know, religious sisters or consecrated virgins, or even single people mm -hmm. who thought that they, you know, would would get married and have children, but aren't even married? How, you know, how, what would you, what would you, uh, what advice or what counsel would you offer them? That's a great question, Joe. Um, because obviously suffering from childlessness is not something that just married couples go through. Mm -hmm. um, you can't say that, uh, an, you know, a priest or a nun is going through infertility, <laughs> but, but they, they may suffer and mourn their childlessness. And I think it's actually an excellent thing that this priest is taking a day of the year where he's mourning it because they are making a, t a tremendous sacrifice to God. Uh, by choosing the celibate life to follow his call. And um, and that means not just not having a, a wife or a husband, but also not having children. And for some, that's harder than others. So, you know, and to go with that to Jesus again, because they're, they're doing it for him. And, and he said he would make the cross light and also that he would he would pay them back. Now, a lot of that seems to be in the next life, but some of it is already now. And, um, you know, they're spiritual fathers and, and mothers. So to learn to live their fatherhood and, and maternity in different ways is, is, is key to their vocation and right. important. So, um, uh, you know, on, 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 on the funny end of things, we had a priest friend who um, said that when he was having difficulty with celibacy, so that was not with childlessness, but with mm -hmm. celibacy, he'd go and visit a, a some friends who had a family and he'd spend an evening with them. He also saw small children and then he felt cured for a while. <laughs> I, I've like, heard oh that gosh. too. Yep. <laughs> so this is very difficult. So that works for some, but not for others. But you know, 
if if it's hard, that's because you're making a real sacrifice, and the sacrifice is not done in one in one time. You have to do it again and again and again. Just like in marriage, we have to every day sacrifice certain things to stay true to our vows. Um, you know, that's our vocation. Our vocation grows, and, and that we fulfill it. So yeah. it's a tough one. Yeah. 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 Um, going back again to something you mentioned earlier, uh, kind of what to say, what not to say. So chapter three of the book is titled, What Not to Say, Some Advice to Family and Friends. So Marie, it's a, a, there's a lot of stuff in there. And I, I just want to ask you your top three. So what are the top three things you would advise family members or friends not to do or say to a couple who's experiencing fertility? And then follow that up with what should family members or friends do or say? Very good questions. Um, well, the first is, it's very simple, is don't give and ask for advice. <laughs> don't, don't go that route. Now, you might know a great method, a great doctor, um, a great psychologist, a great book like mine. But, you know, <laughs> don't throw that at the couple when they haven't asked you for advice. You know, it's really hard to bite one's tongue. Um but, you know, often you feel like you're already in agony and then somebody comes up and wants to talk to you about it. And and you, it, it just it just makes matters worse. Um, mm -hmm. So um, so that goes hand in hand with my second advice is just don't bring up the topic. <laughs> so not only don't give any advice, but don't bring it up because perhaps the couple is fine. Just no one doesn't want to talk about it. It doesn't want to talk with, about it with you or they're in great pain. The most that you can do is say, um, you know, I. I I know this is very painful, or I'm assuming this is very painful. I just want to tell you, I'm here for you if you want mm -hmm. to talk about it. And then if the couple opens up, then you can start giving some advice, but don't be the one to start it. And the other thing is, which I found tremendously galling and painful is curiosity. People would often love to know what's going on. Is it you? Is it your husband? What are the medical issues? What the thing? It's none of your business. You know, this is not something you should ask about. And it feels incredibly unpleasant as a couple to feel like you're becoming this item of curiosity of gossip, because then that's sort of said to friends and other members of the family. It's like, no, this is, this is our secret. This is ours to keep. And if we want to tell you about it, we will. And, um, and finally, something we all do with, you know, sometimes we're aware of it, sometimes we're not, but it's, it's blaming the victim because after seeing a couple of years going through this years and they still don't seem to be any better, you get impatient and you think, well, they must be doing something wrong. They're not accepting God's will sufficiently. Um, you know, they have some psychological issues. They have, you know, this, that, and the other. And, and that is the worst thing you can do because, you're giving the couple not only, you know, they already have the pain of infertility, but on top of that, you're telling it, them that's their fault. So, how, you know, how's that supposed to help in any universe? Right. It, yeah. It's not going to. Um, so, so regarding your follow-up question, the key to it all is, again, it's something extremely simple, but it's compassion. It means I am there to suffer with you. And if that means that I shut my mouth, then that's what it is, because it may be difficult for me to hold back because all I want to do is to help and Perhaps I even just want to be the shoulder that 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 you'll cry on, um, but perhaps the person doesn't want your shoulder just now. So, as I said, the only thing that you can say is, you know, I just want you to know that I'm there for you. If you ever want to talk, if you want to cry on my shoulder, I'm here for you. And and if that happens, um, then only after really giving the couple or one of the spouses the space to mourn, then you can ask, you know. 
I've heard about something that sounds promising. Do you want to hear about it or would you rather not? Um, so then, then, then you can go that route. But um, I know it's really hard to be in that situation as a friend, as a family member, because all you want to do is to help. And there's so little you can do. So mm-hmm. compassion is key. Pray for the couple. Tell, you can tell them that you're praying for them. But, um, you know, if discretion is greatly appreciated and you, if the couple feels that you're not nosy and you are really sort of respecting uh, their need to, to do this on their own, then it's more likely that they will actually turn to you. Yeah. Sorry, did, help them. Did, did you find it helpful for yourself to talk to people? I mean, obviously, there's going to be certain people, but it, yeah. it, was it helpful for you to talk to people? Oh, tremendously. Absolutely. Yes. So the one uh, was my husband, of course, and uh, and then I had some very good friends and then certain family members. But um, I didn't turn much to family and it's not saying anything against my family. It's just, you know, some people are better at this kind of thing or you right. just want to go to certain people and right. reflect badly on your family. Yeah. So, Marie, you you spoke at length in the book about the many pitfalls of the the reproductive technology industry. And you state this. It was one sentence in there that really caught my attention. It's a bit of a provocative statement, but I really liked it. And you said this, quote, couples who try to escape the pain of infertility through things like IVF and surrogacy, that, that was the context here, but couples who try to escape the pain of infertility through these methods are simply shifting their suffering to their child, unquote. Ooh, mm-hmm. provocative. What, what, what are you saying here? You know, I said that because of the quote, and I think I give that quote, of an adult who was conceived through heterologous IVF. So that means IVF by using either the sperm or the egg from a donor. Right. And... And that it was a woman, as far as I remember, and she was suffering tremendously from this. And she said that, you know, it's our parents who weren't able to carry this burden on their own. And so they shifted it onto their children. And I thought, wow, that's that, that, that is something that we're doing. And it's actually even worse than that, because infertility is a human tragedy, you know, like any kind of illness, death, whatever bad things can just randomly happen to you. Um and it's hard to go through that. Um, but that's something different than actually inflicting a wound on another. So the difference, let me put it this way, is my husband dies, tremendous tragedy, awful. My husband leaves me and divorces me. That is, he's hitting me in my heart. He's rejecting me. He's saying no to me. And that is a different category of pain. And that's the pain that comes from sin. Mm-hmm. And... Um, And IVF, um, as the church says, and as I also try to explain, is something that is fundamentally against the dignity of the human person, of the child. It is turned into an object. Now, a child can never become a commodity, should never become a commodity. It is always a gift because of the child's tremendous dignity. Um, And people who have been conceived through IVF speak about this, how how traumatizing the find that the thought that they were conceived of in a lab and right. that their survival was determined by some doctors, random doctors. So their siblings were discarded. Some were frozen. They were chosen by good luck, right. you know, because they seemed to be the healthiest. How terrible, you know, a child from the beginning of conception is meant to be 
safely nested in the womb of, of, of her mother or his mother. And, um, you know, not at the mercy of doctors. And, um, you know, we're so, we're so tuned into today as to what it means for a child to be experiencing any kind of trauma in the womb. So we talk to our, our unborn children, we sing to them, we play music, we're concerned if anything bad happens to us while, while we carry them in our, our, our wombs. And somehow, suddenly, the very beginning should not be important. You know, I, I don't buy that. Um, and there are prenatal psychologists who have talked about um, treating children who've been conceived through IVF and who are aware without being told of siblings that are still frozen or that have been discarded. I mean, how could they know that, you know, even at an age where, where they may not be able to express themselves fully? So there's, there's one story of, of a child that was able to already express itself. It was like three years old. I think it was a girl. And she had this dream of where she was seeing seven siblings who were in a dark place crying and who were cold. And the, the parents told the prenatal psychologist that, yes, they had had children, that number of children that were frozen. And um, so I, I don't know why and how this little girl knew that, but, you know, I, I think we, we, we are taking tremendous risks and we are certainly committing a terrible injustice to these children. How much that may, um, they may become conscious of that, how much that permanently damages them, that depends on the individual. But I think the point is that we should not be inflicting these kind of wounds on our potential children. And it's therefore something very beautiful, I think, that even though we may not have any children, biological children, we can already act as parents. Now, this takes heroism. It's tremendously hard. Um, and But, you know, as Mother Teresa said, we need to love uh, until it hurts. And, and true love goes that path. It, it does what, what hurts in order to do the right thing. Now, um, you know, in case you already have children born through IVF, uh, you know, th th it's, these children are tremendously, have, trem have the same dignity as any other child. And the, ch and the church doesn't say anything else. And, you know, you should love them bits. And I'm sure you can be great parents. But I think as good parents, you should also be aware that there may be some trauma there that you may have to address. And, um, and I think, uh, you know, you need to turn to God to do that. And, um, and the church is there with all of its riches and its sacraments to to offer you all the help you may need. Yeah, hmm. very well stated. Maria, as we, we bring this interview to a close, other than your book, which we'll plug again in a second, what resources, whether secular, religious, would you suggest for people who are experiencing infertility? Sure, so first of all, um, there are other options than IVF <laughs> that are much more promising than IVF. And they were developed by this wonderful doctor, uh, Thomas Hilgers from Omaha, Nebraska. And he's got the Pope Paul VI Institute and he's got the great, web great website. So you can check that out. Yeah, I'll link that. Yeah. And he, um, so it's in the book and uh, he actually heals people. He tries to heal people from their infertility because IVF doesn't heal the couple from its infertility. It just sort of sidelines them and tries to right. produce a child for them in a lab, which is not the same thing. <laughs> so, right. so check him out if you haven't already. Uh, he, he, he really has helped so many couples. It's, it's absolutely marvelous. And then, um, then there are organizations like Hannah's Tears, and they offer spiritual support 
for those suffering from infertility, miscarriage, stillbirth, or, or the loss of a child at any age. So that's a place to go to. Um, and then I recently discovered um, what seems to be a wonderful ministry called Springs in the Desert, and they are uh, ministering to couples going through the pain of infertility. Um and then if you have some some questions of bioethics, then, of course, there's the NCBC where you can always go to <laughs> and yeah, we're here. Night <laughs> and, and get advice as to what the right route for you will be and why certain methods um, are problematic or downright wrong. Yeah. Very well. And I'll link um, I'll link the Pope Paul VI Institute, Hannah's Tears and Springs in the Desert uh, in the show notes so people can people can go there if they want. Maria, what? Mar- Maria, that's my daughter's name. Uh, Marie, what final words of wisdom do you have for our listeners today? You know, um, I'd say you, you might feel just now like you're being crucified and there's no relief in sight. Um, but you can still make small acts of trust, you know, those piccoli passi, those small little steps that Chiara Corbella was talking about, accept the everyday, the pain of, you know, this moment and not more. And I think that you will come to see that the cross has become the tree of life that we don't have access to anymore since Adam and Eve were, were sent out of the, of the Garden of Eden. And, um, you know, God has a wonderful plan. He is the artist par excellence. We often cannot see it in this life. We only glimpse it, but it's like a tapestry and we only see the back of it. But in the next life, we will see the masterwork that it is when we see it from the front. But you have to allow him to act. So my word to you would be have hope um, and, and trust God. Very good. The book is When Expecting Doesn't Happen, Turning Infertility into a Journey of Hope. Marie Meany, thank you for joining me on Bioethics on Air. Thanks so much, Joe. It's been a pleasure. For more information on the topics discussed today and other bioethical issues, please visit our website, ncbcenter.org, where you can subscribe to our newsletter, as well as our publications, Ethics and Medics, and the National Catholic Bioethics Quarterly. The views expressed on Bioethics on Air are not necessarily those of the National Catholic Bioethics Center. If you have comments or questions about this or any of our podcasts, please contact me, your host, Joe Zalot, at jzalot at ncbcenter.org. Archived editions of the podcasts are available on our website. Please hover on the Blogs and Podcasts button on the main page and then click Bioethics on Air. Finally, if you enjoy our podcasts, please subscribe to them. And if you would like to support them, as well as the mission and ongoing work of the NCBC, go to our website, again, ncbcenter.org, and click on the red Donate button. Thank you for listening, and may God's peace be with you.